you to turn to Psalm 32. Let's uh, read together Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, as we open your word together on this beautiful fall Sunday morning, we give thanks that you have spoken clearly in your word. And Lord, as as we come together uh, carrying our sin, our guilt, our shame, our weakness, Lord, what good news to come to a text that boldly declares good news for sinners. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to remove any obstacle of, of understanding, any um, blockage of heart, any, uh, Lord, sin that would keep us from hearing what you desire your people to hear from this text this morning. And so help us by your Spirit that we might grow in the joy of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier uh, this year, Arthur Brooks uh, wrote a column for uh, the Atlantic uh, magazine entitled The Path to Happiness is Narrow but Easy. And he uh, began his article by referencing uh, the opening line of one of Leo Tolstoy's uh, books in which Tolstoy wrote, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Now, Brooks develops the point in his article that positive things such as happiness tend to be simpler, uh, they tend to be more cohesive, they tend to to look more alike. So while there might be a a number of basic ingredients that are common to all happy marriages, we understand that there are 10,000 ways to have a miserable marriage. Happiness, says Brooks, is not hard. It's about getting a few things right. But what's the path to happiness? Well, Brooks cites a 2008 study by two psychologists that asked the question, what do happy people do? Uh, That's a question that should make our ears perk up. What do happy people do? And the answer that these psychologists came up with was that happy people socialize. 
You give attention to relationships. Now, even as an introvert, uh, I don't contest that rich relationships are an important part of what it means uh, to be happy. However, as it stands, I don't think Brooke's prescription goes deep enough. One reason I don't think it goes deep enough is because there's a problem that sabotages our ability to engage in meaningful relationships. It uh, sabotages our relationships with other people. And even more importantly, it's something that sabotages our relationship with the God who made us. So let me explain, because that problem is guilt. Guilt pulls us away from relationships. Suppose you've done something wrong, and deep down, you know it. We've all been there. Uh, Do you feel more or less close to the people around you? I think most of us, if we were honest, would say we feel less close. Well, why? Because when I've done something guilty and I know it, I'm afraid of being found out. I'm afraid of being called out. Because I feel miserable. Guilt works against meaningful connection because I choose to keep myself at a distance in order to protect myself from other people and from being exposed. Now, this is true in our relationship with other people. It's also true of our relationship with God. Our guilt disrupts meaningful fellowship with us and God for two reasons. First, because our guilt objectively separates us from God, who is holy. And secondly, because our guilt subjectively drives us from God. Just like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. They sense they were guilty, and so they retreat from God's presence. God's made us to find joy in relationship with him, but our guilt blocks the path to happiness. King David, who wrote the psalm that we just read together, would agree that the path to happiness is, in a sense, easy but narrow. But there's a deeper need than just relationship because there is a deeper problem than just disconnectedness. We have a guilt problem, King David would say. If King David had uh, penned this column for the Atlantic, uh, he'd put it differently. He'd say, if you want to be happy, if you want to be truly, sincerely, enduringly happy, you have to be forgiven first. This is what David tells us in Psalm 32, that true happiness is found as we uncover our sin before God so that he can cover our sins in forgiveness for us. And so to see that this morning, our our message is going to look at first David's condition and then David's cure and then finally our response. So David's condition, David's cure, and then our response. Now the Bible says that if you want to find happiness, you need to first get clarity about sin and you need to be honest about sin. Now, if we think about that for a minute, that might sound counterintuitive uh, to us. It might even sound a bit outdated uh, to us or to others who hear this message. Uh, Sin, we've moved past that, you might think, or maybe people you know might think. Uh, Talk of sin might make people bristle or feel a little bit uncomfortable. It sounds judgmental. It sounds like uh, I'm trying to exercise or exert Uh, authority over you or control over you by making moral claims about sin. But the fact of the matter is that most people hold to some doctrine of sin. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or Muslim or Jewish or something else. Even in secular culture where God is not 
uh, openly discussed, or at least not in a positive way, there's a strong sense of moral right and wrong. We see it today in the, in the headlines that have come out over the last month. We haven't moved past the doctrine of sin, my point is. We've simply rebranded it. Maybe some of you saw the promotional video that the company Apple put out uh, earlier this year. It's about five minutes long, and there's a nervous Apple executives who are visited by a character who is playing the role of Mother Nature. And Mother Nature comes into the boardroom and demands updates on what Apple is doing to reduce the harm that Apple is doing uh, to the environment. And so Mother Nature fires off questions. uh, How much water are you using? How much carbon is this facility emitting? Are you planting enough trees? See, here's the thing. The video is thoroughly religious. You've sinned against Mother Nature. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to make atonement, to satisfy Mother Nature, this deity who comes swooping in? Now, don't mishear me. I think as Christians, we should be good stewards of this planet. My point, though, is that our culture has not rejected a doctrine of sin. We've just displaced God as the one uh, who sets the standard for what sin is, and God as the one who is ultimately sinned against. Or consider how we also sometimes say things like, uh, I need to forgive myself. Now, I think I understand uh, what's meant by this. It's spoken from a place of misery. When someone says this, they're saying, uh, I'm just struggling with guilt. Uh, I've failed as a parent, perhaps, or I've ruined this uh, friendship. I can't seem to move past what I've done. I just need to forgive myself. Maybe you said that. Well, this time it's not Mother Nature whose pardon that we're ultimately seeking, but it's our own. By our own standard, we've sensed that we are guilty. And here's the thing, we're right. We understand uh, something of our own condition, but we just can't explain it. And we realize that we can't simply get over it. But if I'm the one who's done something egregious, some terrible thing in the first place, how can I be trusted to properly deal with it in the first place? How can I be the one to forgive it? It sort of seems like putting the the criminal in the judge's seat, banging the gavel and declaring himself not guilty. But the point is, underlying this sense that we need to forgive ourselves is a nagging sense that there is something that we all need to be forgiven for that we're guilty, but we struggle to know what that means and how to deal with it. And if we're vague about the problem, we'll be vague about the cure. The Bible's not vague about the problem, though. Psalm 32 is especially helpful for us in explaining what the problem, what sin is. The songwriter uses three words in the opening verses, each that help us understand what sin is. Maybe you caught them. They're transgression, sin, and iniquity. We want to have a full-orbed picture of of what this psalm is teaching concerning sin. Well, transgression here means something like breaking an agreement or an act of rebellion. It's throwing off or rejecting authority. It's like a country that overthrows a uh, king. I'm Canadian, so I know a little less about this than, than you, my American brothers and sisters, do. Or maybe... Uh, It's a child breaking a family rule. I also know something about that. 
In the Bible, though, transgression specifically refers to rebellion against God and against God's standard for living, God's law. And this rebellion causes a deep breach, a fracture in the relationship between the transgressor and God. And all sin involves in some way telling God that he shouldn't be in charge anymore, but that I should. Well, the psalmist also uses the word sin in verse 1. This word for sin means to miss the mark or the target. So sin involves a relationship that has been breached, that's transgression, but it also involves a standard that has been missed. That's what David means by sin. God is the maker of all things, determines how we are to live. And when we fail to, make, uh, to meet the mark, whether we fall short of that mark or whether we go past that mark, we go too far, we've sinned. And the third word that the psalmist uses to describe our condition is iniquity. So if transgression spotlighted a broken relationship and sin highlighted a missed target, iniquity identifies a corrupted person. The psalmist is saying that there is something crooked. There's something twisted within me. So sin is relational, but it's more than relational, we see. Sin is a failure, but it's more than failure. Sin is corruption, but it's more than corruption. Sin is always against God, and it's any failure to live up to his standard or any violation of that standard, and sin renders us guilty. Sin also, though, renders us miserable. See verses 3 and 4. There was a time, David says, when he kept this sin uh, under wraps. He kept uh, silent. He wasn't honestly acknowledging uh, the problem, and as a result, he found himself uh, miserable under the burden of his guilt. The guilt from sin, he says, sapped his strength. It was uh, like uh, just going out in a hot, humid day when it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. It's humid, right? You just feel depleted of strength and energy. That was David. He's restless. He's uncomfortable. He's groaning. He feels like God has set himself up against him. I once visited a man who knew he was dying. And this man wanted uh, to speak with me, a pastor, about something from his past that he felt uh, deeply guilty about. It was something that he had covered up for many uh, years, but covering it up didn't fix the problem. He never found any relief from this over many, many years, and that guilt festered. Nothing he had done in his life had lifted that nagging weight. I wonder if you can relate. One pastor I listened to on this passage said that even if the only standard we were held to was our own, and it's not, but even if the only standard we were held to was our own, deep down, we know that we would still hear the voice in our head saying failure, hypocrite. And guess what? The voice is probably right. Now certainly there are occasions of false guilt, we can feel guilty about things that we shouldn't feel guilty about, about things that weren't our fault. Maybe that's a, a child who's uh, strayed or an untimely death. But what happens when the voice isn't wrong? We need to taste the bitterness of sin for what it is, one old writer said, if we're to taste the sweetness of the cure. So what's the cure? What's the cure that David sets out? Well, when confronted with our sin, we've got a tendency to minimize our guilt or suppress our guilt or deny our guilt. 
to move on. We shrink the size of our offense so we can pack it away neatly out of sight uh, or by strength of will or by a distraction. We seek to drown out this accusing voice uh, either by uh, vigorously pursuing virtue or by plunging ourselves into vice. What our experience of guilt cries out for What we long for, though, is the very thing which the songwriter speaks about in verses 1 and 2. We long for forgiveness. But not just any forgiveness, not cheap forgiveness, but we long for the authoritative declaration from outside of ourselves that releases us from our guilt. And we just looked at three words uh, to explain David's sinful condition. They give us a sense that uh, sin is a broad problem. But now I want you to see three words that explain the breadth of the cure. That the cure is particularly suited to meet the problem that Scripture lays out that we are faced with. David speaks of his transgression as being forgiven, his sin as being covered, and his iniquity as not being counted. So what are these three phrases, what do they mean? Well, that sin is forgiven means that it is carried away. The uh, image here is one like uh, picking up and carrying out the trash. What a wonderful thing. Uh, Men, if that's your job, or ladies, if you do it, that's great. If you're going out and picking up the trash and you're thinking, this is what God does with my sin. He takes it, he carries it away uh, so that it's taken away and it's no more. Someone told me a story recently of a child who uh, threw up in a store uh, onto the carpet all over the place. It was a mess. Uh, and the carpet was made up of those uh, you know, two-by-two carpet squares. And uh, it happened to actually be a, a carpet store where this uh, transgression happened. And so the employee, in, a, in quick thinking, walks over. He rips up the two-by-two uh, carpet square, puke and all, and he throws it in the garbage, never to be seen again. Well, the forgiveness that David has in view is like that. God picks up our sin, all of its putridness, And he puts it in the trash bin, not to be seen again. He removes it. He carries it away. The forgiveness in view here that David speaks of is also a covering. God takes our sin and he hides them from view. When God takes our sin, he takes them and he says they're covered over. They're erased from the record, not to be brought into remembrance again. And the forgiveness in view here is also Uh, such that it is not counted against us. Our sin is not counted against us. The language with this idea is particularly judicial or legal. It's about your rap sheet. God would have been just to read out every one of David's sins ever committed and condemn him on that basis. Guilty. But he doesn't. God's forgiveness means that he has all the evidence that he needs for a conviction, but God doesn't press the case. It's no wonder that David declares, blessed is the person in whom, uh, that, that God has dealt with in this way. Happy is the man whose sins are covered. Happy is the woman against whom God does not count iniquity. The guilt that has made David miserable, that's ruptured his fellowship with God, is gone once for all, never to come back. And the question then is, how do we come to experience the blessedness of the forgiveness of sins? How do we move from the misery of verses 3 and 4 to the happiness of verses 1 and 2? Well, the answer in our psalm begins with honest confession. Verse 5, 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. In verse 1, David said, God covered his sins. And this happened only after David committed to not covering his own sin. Chris Rash, a wonderful commentator on the Psalms, sums up the point this way. Either David covers up his sin or God covers up his sin. He and we cannot have it both ways. The moment David stops his own cover-up, God does his forgiving cover-up. Now we can try to cover our sin and deal with it ourselves like David had done in verses 3 and 4. I'm sure we've all done that at some point. We can downplay our guilt. We can dismiss our guilt. We can come up with excuses for our guilt. We can do that. And some of us have have, uh, demonstrated some degree of proficiency in that. But David says, I can only ever find the blessed relief from my guilt when I uncovered my sin before God. When I confessed it. Now, I think one of the reasons we resist confessing our sin is because we find it too difficult. I mean, if we're to really confess our sin, we find it too difficult. We can't bear to look into the mirror and see ourselves as sins and all. This is why we like photo albums and Instagram. Right? These are carefully selected mementos of us at our best, at our best behavior. I don't know of anyone whose photo feeds uh, have pictures of them screaming at the kids or this is me banging out an angry email at one of my coworkers, right? We don't capture those moments. We want to see ourselves at our most presentable. But neither downplaying nor dismissing our guilt actually deals with it. Instead, we engage in serious self-deception. Say, I'm not quarrelsome, I'm just a straight shooter. Or maybe things didn't go exactly right, uh, but she did far worse. As one politician recently glossed after being caught in some scandal, they said, I messed up. And I just want to say, no, you didn't. You sinned. You profess to be a Christian and you sinned. Yet David says that blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. We need to be honest with ourselves before God about our sin if we want to experience the happiness that comes from being truly forgiven. We need to aim to see our sin as God sees it. We must strive to speak about our sin as God speaks about it. Then and only then... Will the sin that has disrupted our loving fellowship between us and God be properly dealt with? Notice how David puts all of his sin on the table, so to speak. He speaks thoroughly about his sin, using the three words that we looked at earlier. He acknowledges his sin, and he gets honest about it, about the breadth of it, about the problem. He didn't cover his iniquity. Now, that doesn't mean that he took out an ad in the uh, local newspaper about it. Public sins we confess publicly. Private sins, we can confess privately. But David didn't go into self-defense mode. That's what we need to see. He willingly laid bare his sinful condition to God and he confessed his sins to the Lord. And what's God's response? Well, St. Augustine puts it wonderfully. He says, the word of confession is scarcely in David's mouth before the wound is healed. It's as if God, having been brought to see, uh, 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 having been brought uh, brought us to see and say our sin, now God jumps at the chance to forgive us. There's an eagerness in God to deal with our sin truly and deeply to get that stain out. That's what the psalm communicates. Now, 
uh, she's not here, so I feel a little more free to say this, but when I asked my wife Suzanne out on our first date, I was a bundle of, of nerves. Lucy, don't repeat this to your mother. Uh, I, was, I was putting myself out there, right? Uh, uh, what was she going to say? We'd spent an, a year emailing each other back and, and forth, uh, right? There's this wonderful girl. I, I just, if she said no, I couldn't bear, bear the thought of it. Um, and being honest with my feelings with Suzanne felt like a, a little bit of a risk. What was going to happen? That's why sometimes guys uh, will ask the friend of the girl that they like to say, hypothetically speaking, you know, if, if uh, I like Susie, if I were to maybe ask her out if I was interested, say, what would she say? Right? Why do we do that? We want to know what type of reception are we going to get? By the way, she said yes, so I'm very happy about that. <clears throat> when it comes to confessing our sin before God, we thankfully don't have to wonder what type of reception we'll get. David tells us, if we come to God and say, uh, to God in prayer, and we say, oh God, this is who I realize that I am. This is what I've done. It is, it's miserable. It's grievous. It's wicked. You have a right to despise it. But will you forgive me? There is no wondering what God's answer will be. He gives it to us. He says, yes, I will forgive you. No matter how great or how terrible your sin, if you trust him with your sin, he says, yes, I will forgive you. I will blot out any record of those sins and I won't hold them against you. How can this be? Does God merely write off our sin or decide to dismiss it? Well, no, he doesn't. The Apostle Paul helpfully explains to us how God forgives us when he quotes from Psalm 32 in Romans chapter 4. Paul there points to our psalm to make the point that God removes our sin and he counts us righteous in his sight, not because of anything we do, but God sees us as righteous, not even because we've confessed our sin. God will not count our sin against us because on the cross, Jesus died the death our sins deserved. And because of that, God takes the righteous record that belonged to his son and he credits that to all those who trust in him. And so God can eagerly jump to forgive us without compromising his perfection or his perfect standard because Jesus willingly took the punishment that our sins deserved and he did that at the cross. This is the way, this is the only way that sin can be taken seriously and on the other hand, we can receive real, objective, meaningful pardon. Now, this is my testimony, uh, says David to us. This is how God dealt with me, now experience it for yourself. Sort of like when you were kids, right? You and your siblings uh, did something wrong and you realize, okay, we've got to tell mom and dad. Uh, so what did you do? Right? There's only one reasonable, sane thing to do. You send the youngest in to break the news to mom and dad and to test the waters, right? To see how it's going to go. And if there's horrible screams that come from the house, you take off. If dad, you come out and you hear dad wasn't too mad, then you, then you go in, right? Well, it's as if King David comes out the back door and he says to us, oh, go in to dad. Don't hide any longer. Come clean to him. He will deal with you graciously. Therefore, our psalm says, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. There are three main ways that David wants us to respond 
to his story of receiving God's forgiveness. The first response he wants us uh, to uh, do is to receive God's forgiveness ourselves. He calls us here today to confess our sins to God. The happiness, David says, of knowing all of your sins, all of your transgressions, all of your iniquity are covered, removed, cast away, forgiven, can be yours today. I want you to think for a moment of the thing in your life that you are most ashamed of. The thing that you wished no one would know about or ever bring up. The thing that you wished, you, if you had a magical wand, you would go back and you would delete that from your story. Now I want you to think not just about that moment, but about the many other moments that you feel guilt and shame for. And God comes along and he looks those events straight on and he says, not admissible. Not admissible. This can be yours, David says. Call out to God as David did. And don't waste time. Don't put it off. The joy is too great, the psalm says. The relief is too profound. Some people think that dealing with sin and making confession before God is something that they'll do later on. But David says to us, don't wait. Don't wait. If you were facing criminal charges in a civil court and you were offered a pardon, would you delay in going to get your record expunged? No, of course not. You would go and do it right away. You'd want to secure the freedom of knowing that you have an innocent verdict. So why then would you delay in having your sins erased in the court of heaven? And why should we presume that we'll be able to just confess our sins later on? None of us know what tomorrow will bring. Only God knows. You don't know whether you'll be alive tomorrow or not. You don't know whether on your dying day your mind will be sharp and clear or whether you'll be overwhelmed and confused or frightened, as sometimes is the case. But what you can know is that today he may be found if you call upon him. Today, because Jesus died for sinners like myself and like yourself, you can have a clean record, a purified conscience, That you can have confidence before God and before men concerning the day of judgment. And this because Jesus died and was raised for sinners like you and me, if you call upon him. This is the first response that David calls us to. The second response is found in verses 8 and 9. We confess our sin to God and then we humble ourselves to receive God's instruction. Now, commentators are divided uh, whether it's God or David speaking in these verses, but whether it's uh, God speaking directly or God speaking through his chosen king, uh, the basic point is the same. God promises to instruct his forgiven people how to live. I want you to notice then that forgiveness is not just then some box to be checked so that we can go on living life however we want. If we've truly understood what it means for God to forgive you, then you won't be a stubborn mule. I love that description. You won't be a stubborn mule resisting God's leadership. That's what we are when we seek to go against God. We're stubborn mules. We're ignorant. If we think that we can go on our own way and that God cannot, that he will not ultimately subdue us, we're just being stubborn mules. The person who has been forgiven by God wants to be instructed and led by God. His ear is opened to God's instruction as it's found in the Bible. He wants to learn. How does God, the one who has pardoned me of all of my sins and counted me righteous in his son, how does God want me to live? 
The forgiven man's conscience and will is sensitive to God's wisdom. Though they're not sinless, uh, those whom God has forgiven don't want to live for themselves, but for the God who has forgiven them and for Christ who has secured that forgiveness for them. And so I want us to see that the forgiven person responds by humbly receiving God's instruction from his word. Now, the third and final response the psalm calls us to is to rejoice. Those who confess their sin, trusting in the Lord's promises, are surrounded, the psalm says, by his steadfast love and kindness. His love hems them in. It secures us. Therefore, David says, rejoice, be glad, shout for joy. Ian Murray, in his biography of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the uh, famous Welsh preacher, tells the story of a man who was converted under Dr. Lloyd-Jones' ministry in Wales. The man was known by the nickname Staffordshire Bill. Uh, Bill was 70 years old. Uh, He was a foul-mouthed drunk, and he was known in his small town as such. And Bill was sitting in the local bar when he heard some men who were there discussing uh, one of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' most recent sermons. And he heard them talking uh, about how the preacher had said that nobody was hopeless. And Staffordshire Bill was so captivated that he went to church the next Sunday. But as he approached the doors of the church, his nerves got the best of him and he turned back. Bill came uh, the next week and he was coming and, and he was late for services. He could hear the singing inside and so he turned away a second time. Finally, the third Sunday, while he was wavering at the door, someone saw him and and greeted him and welcomed him and said, Bill, why don't you come in and sit with me? That Sunday evening, as he heard the message about Christ, God worked in Staffordshire Bill's heart so that he believed the message that I'm preaching to you this morning. And peace flooded into Bill's heart as he knew that he, even he, could have his sins covered because of Christ. And from that point forward, someone who knew him said, Bill's old battered face was transformed and radiant with inner joy. The joy of forgiveness, of pardon, of not having his sins counted against him. So what's the path to happiness? It's simple but narrow. It's the path walked by David, by Paul, and by Staffordshire Bill. It's seeing our sins before God. It's confessing our sins to God. It's trusting in the promise of God because of the one given to us by God. And all this so that we can receive the pardon that comes from God and be restored to fellowship with God. Or if I could put it plainer still, bring your sin, bring your guilt to Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't wait. He stands ready to forgive you. The Bible says that this is the path to happiness, the only path to happiness, and it's open to us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, truly blessed is the man and woman who knows what it is to have their sins forgiven, their sins covered, their iniquity pardoned and healed. And Father, if you did not speak to us in the Bible, and if you did not provide your Son, there would be no hope for us, and we would live mired all of our days in guilt and under condemnation. But we thank you, Father, that this is not the case, that you have given your Son, the sinless Savior, to die for us, that his record might be credited to us who, by your grace, believe. 
and we might have the joy of knowing what it is to be forgiven and our record made clean. I pray, Lord, for each person here in my hearing, young and old, that, Lord, you would so work that we would know this happiness and this joy. And, Lord, we also pray that you would give us grace, that we would share this, uh, the news that this happiness is possible with, with others who you've placed around us. And so, Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.